So today we continue with our message series, Listening for the Voice of Spiritual Longing. And we're swimming in some pretty deep waters these days, so you like to start out with a little bit of levity. So continuing with The Simpsons this morning, this clip is from an episode called Homer versus the 18th Amendment. Those of you who know what the 18th Amendment is, prohibition. Now just to give you a little bit of background, because what you're going to be seeing is the very, very end of the episode. It starts with Bart inadvertently getting drunk at a St. Paddy's Day parade. And so the residents of Springfield, outraged as they are, fight to restore a little-known thing on the books in the town of Springfield alone from over 200 years ago, a prohibition law. His beloved beer taken from him, Duff. The tagline, you can't get enough for that wonderful Duff. Homer becomes known as the beer baron, bringing illegal suds into town. And unable to stop his bootlegging supply into Springfield's growing number of speakeasies, police chief Wiggum is fired, replaced by the moralistic and you'll see somewhat sadistic G-man Rex Banner. It is an amazing and funny episode. It's got references to Edward Hopper's Nighthawks painting, to the Untouchables, to Jazz Age America, and the voiceovers from the late, great crusading journalist Walter Winchell. So let's roll it. Homer's Toast to Booze. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. That is a perfect encapsulation of the circular logic of addiction. That downward spiral of addictive reasoning. It's kind of like, if you really think about it for a second, that old kid song, There Was an Old Lady Who Followed a Fly. It's disarmingly simple, but acutely on target in its understanding of how addiction comes to be. First, the fly. Simple enough. It's not a huge issue, a minor bother. But then, another animal to chase the fly. And another animal to chase the animal that got the fly. And another animal after that, and another animal after that. And pretty soon we're off to the races. To kill the smaller problem. The old lady who swallowed the fly creates an even bigger one for herself. One with, as the song said, increasingly irrational behavior. How absurd she swallowed a bird. It makes no sense. But that is the twisted logic of addiction. More of the same will save you from what already has hurt you so much. The little old lady actually disregards in the song what Bart Simpson always says. Don't have a cow, ma'am. She literally does eat a cow in the song. And we know how it goes after that. Follow along if you want to. She swallowed the cow to catch the dog. She swallowed the dog to catch the cat. She swallowed the cat to catch the bird. She swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wiggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed that fly. And then the kicker. There's always a real hint of truth we don't want to accept in these old, old children's stories and songs and fairy tales. I don't know why she swallowed that fly. Perhaps she'll die. Suddenly it gets a fun. Addiction can be like a spiritual and emotional death. Where joy, love, passion, meaning, purpose, even God, get squeezed out of life to the margins almost entirely. And of course, addiction can lead to physical death, to the end of our lives. The songs, the beautiful old children's song, its development mirrors how addiction has increasing tolerance for a larger amount of the substance that builds and builds and builds over time. It's not just fly after fly after fly, it's fly that all the way reaches up to elephant. And we imagine the song would continue on. 
horse. Maybe a lion after that to get the horse. What she is consuming in time consumes her. It takes over her life. She is literally digging a hole for herself. It's that hole that we talk about when we talk about addiction that might in time lead, and we can hope this with the little old lady who swallowed a fly, that it might lead her to bottom out, to realize that finally she is tired of digging. She is tired of digging her own hole. The best definition of addiction that I know is by Dr. Gerald May, who wrote a beautiful book called Addiction and Grace, and it is one of the best global understandings of addiction that's out there. He says this, I'll repeat it twice, but it really is quite simple profound. Addiction is any compulsive habitual behavior that limits the freedom of human desire. Addiction is any compulsive habitual behavior that limits the freedom of our given human desire. Dr. May says this occurs when our desires become attached, literally think of attached, to the specific behaviors, objects, and people. Now to understand what attachment really feels like, not as a concept, but to understand what it really feels like, attachment. It's really interesting to go back to the old French attaché. It gives us the meaning of the world, attachment. What it means is this. Pick that up here. Attachment means to be nailed to. Nailed to. That human desire, our free human desire, nailed to an object that we would not wish, but we cannot free ourselves. And it's like the Buddha talked about in Four Noble Truths. This kind of attachment leads us inevitably to suffer because what we expect will give us happiness inevitably will not. And because our will in an addicted situation is compromised, we cannot freely choose another way of satisfying our healthy and whole urge for happiness and peace and longing and love. Because of this, it's not a mistake that addiction is often called a form of enslavement, a form in which freedom is taken from us. And the great thing about Dr. May's definition of addiction is that it's not just limited to drugs or to alcohol. We can turn anything in our lives into an addiction. You can turn anything in your life into an addiction. You can hear it in the romance stories gone wrong. Oh, if you leave me, I will kill myself. That's an addiction. Could be shopping, could be cars, could be your home, could be another person. Anything that holds value for us can be turned into an addiction an unhealthy nailing down of our free human desire. Emerson put it this way, be careful what you worship, for what you worship you will become. Be careful what you worship, for what you worship you will become. Now we know the body of literature around addiction. Centuries ago people just thought it was a demon. Literally we were demon infested. There are all sorts of reasons, we know, scientific and spiritual ones. Genetic predisposition, addiction runs in families. Sometimes addictions start because we yearn for comfort or relief from stress or pain, or because the substance or the person promises us that the sadness or the loneliness or depression will go away. Mental illness is one of the primary causes for people to lapse into addiction because we can want to treat that illness which can seem ourselves try and make it go away with a drug or an alcohol or anything we can abuse. 
And parents, this is an important thing if you don't know it already. The age at which a person picks up using a substance has a real determining effect on whether they will become addicted or not. A young person who begins drinking at or before the age of 15 is four times more likely to become alcoholic than someone who begins drinking at age 21. That is literally a sober thought. But you know what? It's not just to escape negative things that addictions start. Sometimes it's the allure of happiness, the allure of fullness, the allure of joy. Sort of like an ancient Greek myth, one of those trickster myths, where the sirens are calling us off, and we might think that call is for home, but in fact, if we head out on that journey of addiction, we're going to wind up with our ship stalled out and crashed on the rocks. There is a connection between not true spirituality, but some of the things we talk about when we talk about spirituality and addiction. There is a reason that alcohol are called spirits. There is a reason that drug usage is called getting high. Literally, that's what it can feel like. Addictions often start for many people when some of our most basic, wonderful core needs, what our freedom is there for, that these things were wanting. The desire for intimacy, for love, for connection, to live a life of meaning and purpose. The things that we need if we are going to grow up and grow well and grow full and grow maturely in life. These things don't come sometimes. And so addiction, what starts down the road, can be wanting instant gratification. People often feel, especially early on in the usage of that substance, that they know perfect freedom. That's what makes addiction so a guideline. That's what makes its song so difficult to resist. That's the experience of addiction, of having our desire nailed down to something we do not wish and we do not want. Addiction is, as many people know, humbling. And one of the first things it humbles us about is the entirely rational nature of life. That somehow, if we're just given the best choices, and all the choices, that of course we will, being rational agents, in, in, intelligent people, choose the best for ourselves. But we know that's not always the case. Paul, who I don't very often quote approvingly from the New Testament, I will quote him approvingly here today. He wrote about this process in his letter to the Romans. He wrote, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Insane, awful, insane thing over and over again. Part of that yearning and addiction is for instant gratification, that knowing the good things, we can spy them, but we don't always know how or the best way to get them. And so there is that yearning for now. Quick, I want it, give it to me. But we know, all of us, there are no shortcuts on the real path to maturity, on the real path to wisdom, on the real path to love, to true love. It's kind of like, think of those stereotypical drunks, walking arm in arm, sort of stumbling down the street, arms slung over each other saying, I love you, man. And the next se second, they're throwing epithets and punches at each other. Because real intimacy can't be rushed. It's almost like they turn on each other so quickly because there hasn't been the time to allow trust, true trust, true faith to grow up over time. That's cheap words. 
and Diana Ross and the Supremes were actually absolutely right when they were talking about something different that applies here. You can't hurry love. You can't hurry wisdom. You can't hurry intimacy. It's kind of like maybe some of you have received it, those email schemes that you can get sometimes. You know those emails with the pump and dump stocks? Buy now. Get in high. The stock that they're selling has no innate value. Eventually when people move on, the stock will bottom out and it will crash. It will be left worthless and empty. Anne Lamont, who is a recovering alcoholic herself, in a beautiful passage in her book, Traveling Mercies, talks about the futility of trying to pump herself up into happiness, of trying to pump herself up into joy, and it dates back into her family. It dates back into her family when her dad, who was depressed very often, was low, and all the kids, she said, would start pumping, start pumping, let's lift dad up, because it was like trickle-down economics. If dad's doing happy, then we're going to be okay. And there was a high, maybe, for a little bit of time if they were lucky where it inevitably becomes the crash and the low. The reason is, is because of all the external validation and all the external security that we might need or say that we want in this world, if we believe ourselves rotten at the core, then nothing will ever be enough. Nothing will ever be enough. Addicts very often don't feel worthy of the things they want most. And so there's that gnawing insecurity, which sometimes expresses itself paradoxically in that boastful, braggadocious kind of way of being in the world. And really, that's just an ego that doesn't know how to satisfy its way in health, itself in healthy ways. There's that fear of the self not being something worthy, not being something that has value, not being something that has inherent worth and dignity. And so the addictive process continues, because it's what the addict knows. The drinks keep coming, the drugs keep getting consumed, the shopping keeps going until the credit card fills and atrocious, the gambling keeps rolling the dice, the person keeps getting into abusive relationships, because that is what they know how to do and they're not sure how to free themselves. And that is, in a nutshell, the quandary of what an addicted person faces. How do you save yourself when what you're doing isn't working? When what you're doing is what you know how to do? How possibly can you save yourself? And part of the clue of recovery from addiction comes in this morning's song. That last line may seem like a downer. Just give up. Just give up. If we are going to learn to do something different, the first step to admit is that what we are doing, we must let drop from our hands. And that is terrifying. Augustine, over about 2,000 years ago, said that God is continuously trying to give good things into our hands in life, but we are so busy clutching on to those things that we know already that we're not able to receive the new things with open hands. Try taking the hand of someone close to you that's balled up into a fist. There can't be anything that interlocks. And that's why it can be so scary. Because it is horrible for an addicted person to have to ask for help when very often, sometimes for decades, for years, they've been suppressing that need for authentic human communion, for loving relationship with another person. That is the challenge. And well, at least many have traveled this road before us. I can think of no better guide than Dante. 
in his divine comedy. Maybe some of you remember reading it years ago. It is his journey, the soul's metaphorical journey, out from the inferno through purgatory, finally up to paradiso, to bliss. And he's so tired, so weary from seeing the suffering in the inferno, and so weary from burning off, as they say, the karma in purgatory. And he finally is getting up to bliss, to paradise. And he is ready to climb that mountain that he needs to. And his feet cannot go one more step. He literally cannot lift himself up through his own efforts. And so he falls down almost dead asleep at the foot of the mountain. And what happens? Paradise. What happens is that an angel comes and lifts Dante up, not of his own accord, but lifts him up to where he wishes to go. Dante's literary metaphor is talking about something real and many people's lives. It is the experience of grace. It is, as the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scripture says in the voice of the divine, united with me you shall overcome all difficulties by my grace. Now personally, I do not believe that God spoke literally in this fashion, but I do believe it was an encounter so real and so true about someone's understanding of God that it continues to hold wisdom for us. Paul Tillich talked about it in a way that didn't turn God into just like a person but bigger than us. When he talked about grace, he talked about life being reunited with life. It is the opportunity once more to realize our freedom. And sometimes for all the struggle and all the things we go through, especially when we find ourselves in that kind of addicted relationship or addicted situation, it is grace. It is learning to let go. That is the start of health. And so after that reunion of life with life comes the responsibility. It comes that time when we can realize once again our inner light, our Buddha nature, our dignity that is given us simply because we are alive as human beings. And after that, grace then becomes our responsibility. Our responsibility to live in accord on a daily basis with a responsible freedom. Now what I preach to you about addiction today is something close to my heart. I am a recovering alcoholic. I gotta tell you, I had a tough time writing this message. I say I am in recovery because alcohol is for me a symptom. It is a symptom of larger dis-ease in my spirit, in my soul, in my life. First started drinking, try and put to bed some of those demons. Constant anxiety I was feeling, even from the age of 12, 13 on. The fact that, like Ryan Adams, a singer, said, I seem to be born with an abundance of inherited sadness. Things in my life should have been fine from the outside, but should have doesn't equate with reality. And so I've made a decision day after day for sobriety, because I finally got tired of being my own worst enemy. And I finally got tired of being the cause of other people's misery, particularly people who I loved and cared about. And I finally got tired, this is tough for me to do, thinking that drinking is something romantic. Drinking, thinking that drinking is something that poets did. Thinking, as a guy who wasn't always so secure in his masculine identity, thinking he belonged at the big boys' table and the big boys' club, drinking to what men do. And if I could drink with the guys twice my size, 
I was mad. And I also say I'm in recovery because I don't want to be what they call a dry drunk. <laughs> dry drunk is the person who puts down the drink or puts down the abusive relationship or puts down the drug but maintains all those same patterns. All that same feeling, all that same resentment, all that same loathing, all that same fear. I don't want to have those same behavior patterns anymore. I started drinking, I gotta say, pretty early. I was one of those people in that statistic that I gave you. Boarding school is a great laboratory to begin to learn how to drink. I spent my weekends mostly in New York City, where in the 1980s, remember, this is pre Giuliani time, it was easier for almost anyone of, well, if you looked 13, 14 or up, walk into any deli, chances were you could probably get served alcohol rather than refused it. It's not their fault, it's mine. But I had means, certainly the motive. I had tons of opportunity to fall in love, and I mean that, fall in love with drink. But the love affair soured pretty quickly, but it didn't end. Probably the easiest way that I can explain to you what my relationship with alcohol was was that I outsourced my life to alcohol. Literally, if the business of my life was growing my life, I outsourced that. I sent it far away. Time to celebrate. Where's the booze? Because it's never real or fun enough unless I'm pouring something into it. Time for sadness. I knew enough of that, too. And grief and loss, as we all do. Well, maybe I was afraid I wouldn't come out the other side. And so I drank my way through most of the sadnesses in my life and most of the grief in my life. And after a while, and this is the insidious part of drinking and any addiction, but that you just don't need an excuse. I certainly didn't. Sometimes it was 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, nothing to do until church tomorrow morning. I'm bored. I the one up. Chase the one after that, the one after that. It's the little old lady in the fly. You get it. I was living, I've come to realize, what Thoreau called a life of quiet desperation. And even more, I was not inhabiting my existence. I was checking out, and I am what they call, I don't really like the term because it creates gradations of people who sound better than other people. But I was what they call a functional alcohol. It will make through school, a couple master's degrees, a couple honors bestowed on me able to get a job, able even to succeed. But the heart of me, the heart of me, there was a hole. And so I remember what that day was like. Over a year and nine months ago, not long after I began here, before I knew just about any of you, when what I hope, God willing, day by day, will be the last hangover of my life. Light shone through the windows, and it was as if Ray said, It said, This is an invitation. It is yours to take it if you want it. And I don't know how many, how many times I've received that invitation before and said, Oh, yeah, this will be the day, no more. And refused. But something was different that day, that invitation. And I have come to know in that time a peace that is deeper than despair and a love that is stronger than hate. But it takes time and effort and learning to live into that truth it has for me. See, because sobriety does not guarantee instant bliss. If it did, it would be just another addiction. If it gave you instant bliss, it would be just another addiction. 
Rather, it is that invitation. It is the capacity, the restoration, and I mean that, the restoration within me as I experience the capacity for real happiness and joy and soulful pleasure in being alive. Gratitude is finally what marks it. And gratitude, I can say now, as I'm just starting to realize it, gratitude even extends to my being an alcoholic in the first place. It sounds somewhat odd, but it is true. Because all those years with my drinking would not let me forget. It was almost as if when you see a murder scene, when you see that chalk outline of the body, I could see all that time that there was that chalk outline. It was an absence. It was a hole. But still there was something there, a presence that if I chose to one day wake up as that invitation came, then maybe I can move forward in my life. My God-shaped holes have always been there. And your God-shaped holes have always been there, even if you don't call them God-shaped holes. It's God-shaped holes inside of ourselves, the parts of ourselves that are our birthright, are our birthright. And they are those parts that say wholeness is a real destiny for us as human beings. Peace and love and intimacy and joy. And God, in whatever way you understand that term, are real things for all of us. But first it started for me by putting it down and learning to listen to my life in a way so that my hearing was not distorted any longer. Now this distorted thinking, I heard a great example of the other day, and I'm not judging him as a person, although I don't always agree with what he says, but Christopher Hitchens, some of you might know, wrote a recent book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now, he makes a lot of sense in that book at times. He really, really does. But obviously I wouldn't be here, and I hope you wouldn't be here if you thought all religion poisoned everything. But there was an interview with him on beliefnet.com, and he said these words. The fact that my brain doesn't give me much peace doesn't worry for me. doesn't worry me. When people say, well, you could have bliss and calm and nirvana, I would say, I don't want it. I don't believe you could give it to me. But if you could, I would not take you up on that offer. I don't want a life without anxiety. I don't want a life without conflict. I don't want a life without combat. To the contrary, I want all those things in large measure. Now there would have been a time in my life when I would have thought, it's all those mush-brained people, they don't get anything done because happiness is finally just so damn inefficient. It doesn't do anything, it doesn't go anywhere. And I would have agreed, flipping the pages of my Nietzsche in between sips of scotch, I would have said, yeah, he's on to something. But I do believe what Christopher Hitchens, and he probably would agree with it, he just wouldn't agree it's a bad thing. But I do think we hear in his voice what is one of my few and favorite definitions of sin. It is not a matter of who you love or who you sleep with or how you sleep with them or any of that nonsense. But sin, Augustine said, is disordered loving. I love that definition. Disordered loving. See, because the question in all our lives is not, did you love? We're born with that capacity, all of us. But the question, if we will grow into being whole people, is have I learned to love the right things in the right ways? Have you learned to love the right things in the right ways? Now, I love the New York Yankees. But when they lose, and it really bums me out. You know what I'm facing? I'm facing a situation in which I am reserving a kind of love that is intended for something greater for other people, for life itself, for God, and I am applying it to something of much lesser magnitude. Yes, I maintain some of my addictions. The Yankees are one of them. 
but in becoming unaddicted people, people who are free to love, we can answer the question of the great Buddhist teacher Jack Kornfield. His question is, am I living, are you living, a path with heart? Did I love well? Did you love well? There is an art in loving. It is not just a matter of being in love that solves everything. To recall the freedom of our human desire is to love well. To love not out of need, to love not out of anxiety, to love not out of despair, but out of the core conviction that all of us, whatever you call the source, all of us are blessed with the capacity to flourish. When this kind of freedom is restored and recovered, it is a wondrous thing. It's when our loves become ordered again that we start to know what it is to be whole people. Many years ago, I heard a story of someone who was struggling with addiction. I want to close with this because it stuck with me all these years. And the story that was objectively more horrible than my own. It resonates for me. There's a woman who had struggled for many, many years with addiction. With hardcore, I mean heroin, cocaine, all the stuff that got her in jail and homeless and really, really horrible. And she said on the day that she woke up, on the day that she said yes to her sobriety, she said she looked in the mirror and for the first time in years, she could see clearly the color of her own eyes. Imagine how compromised someone's freedom is to not remember the color of our eyes are. But that's what we're all called to. To look in the mirror and to see ourselves clearly as we are with all of our faults and all of our failings, yes, but with all of our capacity to grow, yes, more still. To see clearly and to see in such a way that love is the color of our sight. This is what we all are called to. Amen. 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 Amen.